I just slipped through an exam, and you're listening to a Radio 1 91FM podcast. Kia ora koutou, ke te whakaronga mai koe ki te reo irirangi kotahi. You are listening to the R1 News here on Radio 1 91FM. Ko Eileen Aho. Ko Scott Aho. Coming up on the programme i tēnei rā, uh, at 11.15, last night I spoke to Sonia Tiernan of the... Uh, University of Otago Centre for Irish and Scottish Studies about Nationalist Party Sinn Féin's landmark win in Northern Ireland last week uh, and what this means for potential Irish reunification in the future. At 11.30, we've got Lisa Ellis, uh, the director of the PPE program here at the University of Otago, coming in to chat about climate change and sustainability policies ahead of the 2022 budget announcement. At 11.45, I explain and discuss with Australians what their thoughts are and what they think is going to um, be the hot-button issues on the upcoming Australian federal election. A real politics show today. Yes. Uh, all that coming up in the next hour. First up, here is Princess Chelsea with Everything is Going to Be All Right here on the R1 News. The time is three minutes past 11.
Tēnā koutou i tēnei ata. You are listening to the R1 News here on Radio 191 FM. The time is 14 minutes past 11. The Northern Irish elections were held last week and saw Irish Nationalist Party Sinn Féin come out with the majority of votes. This is the first time a nationalist party, rather than a unionist party committed to keeping Northern Ireland in the UK, has held the majority of votes in a Northern Irish election. Last night, I spoke to Sonia Tiernan, co-director of the University of Otago Centre for Irish and Scottish Studies, about Sinn Féin's win and the direction in which it pushes the conversation about a unified Ireland. So Nationalist Party Sinn Féin has won the Northern Irish election and they're the first um, Irish Nationalist Party to win a Northern Irish election. Nationalism in this context means something a little different than what a lot of New Zealanders might imagine when they hear of nationalism. So firstly, can you explain uh, why it's such a big deal for an Irish Nationalist Party to have come out on top in this election? Yeah, so essentially you're absolutely right. I mean, nationalism from this context, we're talking about the two kind of differing um, major beliefs would be nationalism who believe in a reunited Ireland and unionists who want to stay within the British Union. So essentially Northern Ireland had, it was the 100 year, the centenary anniversary last year. So this is the first time in 101 years that a nationalist party have actually won the elections. So from that point of view, that is absolutely um, a huge shift. It also means that it opens up the possibility of what's called a border poll, which would mean it's, it's something that was set up in 1998 with um, most listeners would be familiar. I've heard of the Good Friday Agreement in Ireland, which is essentially a peace treaty. And that one of the articles in it offered the opportunity of a border poll, a referendum where people in Northern Ireland and people in the Republic of Ireland could vote for the country to be reunified. And that is Sinn Féin's biggest goal, is to hold a, a border poll. So very similar kind of referendum that we would have seen with the Scottish independence referendum, essentially. I say. Um, and beyond unification, I suppose, politically and ideologically, who are uh, Sinn Féin? Because they are now the dominant party in both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, correct? Well, they're not in government in the Republic of Ireland, nor have they ever served in government, um, which is an interesting one as well, because you're right from the point of view of during the last elections, they also received the highest number of seats than they ever have before in the Republic of Ireland, but not enough to form a government on their own. Um, but even though they have um, a large number of seats, the other main parties being Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, have refused and have always said that they will refuse to go into power with them. And that's essentially, you know, that's really going back to the history of the party because historically the Sinn Féin party would have been associated as the political wing of the IRA or the Irish Republican Army. So we've still got that kind of hangover um, of that sense. But certainly the polls are revealing in the Republic of Ireland that there is a move forward now for Sinn Féin as well, that they'll get even more seats in the next in the next election. So, of course, that could be an interesting one to see how that actually pans out. And it does actually mean because uh, Sinn Féin will now hold the, the post as the first minister in a devolved government in Stormont, it also means that the political parties here have less opportunity really to say, well, they won't go into power with them because they're clearly a viable political party. So therefore, why would you continually refuse to go into power with them? And they are not associated with violence in any way anymore. And um, again, since the Good Friday Agreement, there has essentially been peace on the island of Ireland. So many people would argue it's time to move forward. And therefore, you know, so who knows? The, the obvious party to go into power with them in the Republic would be Fianna Fáil because they actually consider themselves the Republic Party, the Republican Party here. And I guess what is the actual likelihood of uh, of Irish unification here? Like, how realistic is it? It's, it seems to be, I mean, certainly for the last, within the last decade anyway, it's it's much more even in the national vocabulary. I mean, people are discussing it and talking about it. So it certainly seems that it's inevitable that a border poll will be held. 
But again, at that referendum, we have all these polls on how people will vote. But of course, you know, when we saw with the Scottish independence referendum, it actually looked likely that that possibly would have would have gone across the board and there would have been Scottish independence. But of course, that's not the way people voted at the end of the day. Um, but I certainly think that, yeah, and I think Scotland will have an influence on that as well, because if Northern Ireland pushes forward and if either Northern Ireland or Scotland goes independent or Northern Ireland break up of the United Kingdom, you know, first of all, we have the Brexit move and now we've also got this kind of chink in to break up the union. And I do think it's more likely that it will happen, but possibly not Sinn Féin are kind of, you know, signalling that there could be a border poll in the next five years. I personally don't think that um, the country is kind of ready to move forward on reunification or that people will be ready that early. But I certainly think it's very likely within the next two decades. And sort of my last question, as part of the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland was, of course, a part of Brexit, but with conditions allowing for a level Mm. of trade uh, with the Republic of Ireland. And Irish unification would mean Ireland's re-entry or the would mean Northern Ireland as it is now, it's re-entry into the EU. What would that mean, I guess, both for the remaining countries of the United Kingdom, but also for Ireland? Yeah, now that's you've hit on a really interesting point there because that's kind of at the crux now of what happens even next with the formation of the Northern Ireland Assembly in Stormont because it's a power-sharing government and the only way a government can sit is if both of the the nationalist party, the majority of the nationalist party and the majority of the unionist party actually form a government. Now, the unionists are saying that they will not form a government at Stormont. And in fact, the leader of the DUP, uh, Jeffrey Donaldson, is saying he won't sit in Stormont until what's called the Northern Ireland Protocol is removed or changed. Now, the Northern Ireland Protocol was set up because Northern Ireland is a very small state. It's six counties in a 32-county country, so it's very small. So to have Northern Ireland on its own with a land border into an EU zone, because Ireland is very firmly a member of the EU, and there is no shaking the Republic of Ireland out of the EU. So it's not that there's never been any discussion of, of Ireland moving from the EU. So we have this situation that there was a big problem for trade in Northern Ireland. Even the fact that some people may live in Northern Ireland, but work in the Republic of Ireland, or that there is trade, even farming, you know, material passing across. There's not a border anymore, but that kind of border between the land base of Northern Ireland and into the Republic. So as part of the Brexit transition period, they established this Northern Ireland protocol, which means Northern Ireland is treated entirely different from a trade perspective than the rest of the United Kingdom, because goods can pass freely between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, but there will be, there's an EU kind of regulation on any goods passing from the UK into Northern Ireland. And this really worries. So essentially, they're kind of they're kind of slightly Northern Ireland is actually slightly still within the EU trade um, tariff zone, if you like. That that's probably the best way of of looking at it. And that causes a big problem from the unionists because they maintain, well, that means they're not really British any longer. They're not fully part of the United Kingdom, and they want that removed. But of course, from the perspective of a trade. I think this is why they could possibly have lost quite a lot of votes as well, because people in Northern Ireland that are that are trading, that are working on a daily basis are being affected by this. So it would make much more economic sense for Northern Ireland to still be within the EU. And if they're reunified with Ireland, they would be. So from an economic standpoint, it actually makes a lot of sense for them. That was Sonia Tiernan of the... Otago Centre for Irish and Scottish Studies on Sinn Féin's recent win in Northern Ireland and what it means for the future of the conversation about a unified Ireland. You are listening to the R1 News. It is currently 24 minutes past 11 and we will be taking you through to midday. At half past, we will be speaking to Lisa Ellis from the PPE programme here at Otago uh, about the upcoming budget and in particular what it means for... 
uh, climate and sustainability measures in Aotearoa. But first up, here is Fontaine's DC with Roman Holiday on the R1 News on Radio 191 FM.
Uh, listening to the R1 News here on Radio 191 FM. It is currently 28 minutes to 12. Finance Minister Grant Robertson is set to announce the 2022 budget next week. Robertson has said this year's budget will be one to build resilience in the economy and tighten the belt as Aotearoa moves towards a post-COVID world. Alongside and as part of COVID recovery, the government's climate change response is a much-anticipated part of this year's budget. With a recent report suggesting sea level rises happening at a much faster rate than previously thought, alongside globally rising temperatures. We're joined now in studio by Lisa Ellis, Professor of Philosophy and Director of the PPE Programme here at the University of Otago, to chat more about the climate and environmental potential of the 2022 budget. Kia ora, Lisa. Thank you for coming in today. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. Uh, So firstly, what is the scope of what the government can do sort of environmentally within the budget and what's already been allocated to climate spending? That is a great question. And what they can do is a lot more than what they're planning to do. So in terms of um, what has already been decided, for example, there's already a commitment for the proceeds from the emissions trading scheme to be allocated to climate reduction efforts. And on the one hand, this seems um, super progressive. It's a steady stream of funding that won't have to be renegotiated every year, and it shouldn't uh, be affected by changes in government. And that kind of um, stability when you're seeking to do forward planning is really important. On the other hand, if you look at um, the ETS allocation in terms of uh, global norms and possibilities, you see that it was a big miss, at least from my perspective, that um, 
in other places, for example, in British Columbia, when they collect um, carbon emission-based taxes, they have a scheme in place where those um, carbon fees are distributed um, directly back to the people so that uh, the taxation scheme doesn't affect the overall economy, but it does affect people's decisions in a really progressive way. And the beautiful thing about those schemes is that, first of all, it brings everyone along in a social project without leaving the least advantaged behind. And second, it gives everybody an immediate stake in the transition um, to sustainability. So I am a little bit sad um, that even though it's a good thing that we have this steady stream of emissions reduction funding, we missed out on this opportunity to bring everybody along together by using something more like carbon fee and dividend. Building on that, one of the sort of hot-button issues relating to climate change and emissions right now is public transport, especially with the, and transport in general, with the um, public transport fees currently being halved. Do you think with this budget, can we expect to see more measures aimed at uh, the public and what we're able to do um, or what we can't do, uh, such as public transport measures, encouraging more sustainable diets, etc.? or more political and economic measures such as the ATS? I really hope that we begin to be more active in the space of making people's um, sustainable choices possible by providing the structural background necessary. So reducing public transport fees is fantastic and a great measure. And I really hope that we find out on Monday that they are making this um, reduction in fees more permanent. After all, uh, you cannot blame people for their emission-based um, uh, uh uh, experiences every day if you don't offer them alternatives. So the usual debate where people say, oh, you must love the fossil fuel mobility regime. After all, didn't you use a car to get to your job is um, really mistaken. People make decisions within a context um, that they were born into and that uh, they haven't been asked whether they affirm that context. And one of the things that we can do to make people able to make decisions that are good for them and good for society, good for the future and good for the environment is to offer people alternatives to high emission transport. Right now we're not doing that and it's not just in terms of the prices of transportation, although those could certainly be brought down to zero. After all, every time you take a bus, it's a pro-social activity. Um, on top of that, we really do need to um, adjust our city planning um, so that um, we have more compact cities that uh, reward pedestrian involvement. And we have to make it safer to cycle and to walk around the cities. Uh, I think one thing that we're um, not focusing on in the middle of this Road to Zero campaign is that most of the carnage on the roads is not experienced by drivers, but by pedestrians and uh, other vulnerable people like cyclists. Mm. Um, building on sort of alternative options, uh, the ACT Party has recently unveiled their alternative budget, and alongside a raft of other cuts, they would reverse some of the existing climate change policy we've got in place. Uh, looking forward a bit, but we've got a general election next year. Say we see a coalition government with national and ACT, or even a standalone national government, what climate measures might we see come from the right? Well, I was heartened um, by the national government leader, uh, and uh, the prospective uh, national government finance minister and deputy leader both saying very clearly this morning um, that, of course, they're in favor of the emission reduction plan budgets and that they support the Climate Change Commission in its science-based budget projections and that they were part of the coalition that passed the Zero Carbon Act, um, which sitting here in Radio 1, I want to remind you that the Zero Carbon Act, however imperfect, is a beautiful accomplishment of students organizing, thinking about their collective future. And it never would have happened without student activism. That's wonderful. Um, and finally, Aotearoa is, of course, a relatively small contributor to the global climate crisis on the whole. Can we expect to see any new international ties forged or existing ties strengthened as part of this budget with that goal of reducing emissions and slowing climate change? Man, I sure hope so. We are losing our always shaky international reputation incredibly fast. 
Um, so uh, sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, we're just a small player. Um, but the fact is uh, nearly 40% of the emissions in the world are emitted by people who would conceive of themselves as small players. Mm -hmm. If the small players don't come along all of us um, will lose the climate stability that the last 10,000 years allowed us to enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, moreover, um, Aotearoa New Zealand has incredibly high per capita greenhouse gas emissions. If you think about, um, even just in the present, not even thinking about our historical disproportionate emission, if you think about the present, um, our per capita emissions are higher um, by a factor of two than the UK. Um, they're higher than the world. Um, by more than a factor of three. Uh, it, it doesn't comfort me that they're not quite as high as the emissions in the United States because I don't consider the United States a global leader. Mm. So when we do things like step onto the world stage and use our one moment of moral authority to get the IPCC to change its plan from encouraging plant-based diets to encouraging so-called sustainable diets, that damages our international reputation. We shouldn't have done that. And it's... Uh, a shame that the sort of shine on clean, green New Zealand is being lost. I do think we have an opportunity with this budget to rectify that. Um, after all, there are some real firsts for us. Um, for example, we are the first country in the world to require transparency in climate risk reporting of our major financial institutions and corporations. And that's enormously important, even if it sounds kind of technical. And it's great that we have the Zero Carbon Act constraining us, even if it's radically in a uh, insufficient. It's eye-opening indeed. Well, thank you so <laughs> much for coming in and chatting to us today, Lisa. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Kia ora. That was Lisa Ellis from the PPE program uh, here at the University of Otago chatting about climate change and sustainability policies ahead of next week's 2022 budget announcement. A little later in the show here on the R1 News, Scott Favell has been speaking to, to some Australians on their perspectives on the upcoming Australian federal election. But before all of that, here is Saltwater Criminals with Walk.
You are listening to R1 News. It is 14 minutes to 12. On May 21st, Australia will decide who will lead the federal government for the next four years. The incumbent Liberal National Coalition government of Scott Morrison seeks to improve on a three-seat majority from the last election as it faces a concerted challenge from former Deputy Prime Minister Anthony Albanese of the Australian Labor Party. To understand what regular Australians felt about the election, R1 News reporter Scott Favell spoke to Australians both resident and in New Zealand about what issues the public were facing and what concerned them most. University of Otago Associate Professor Vicky Spencer felt that both the standard of living and state of climate change in Australia are concerning Australians as they go to the polls. For Australians, I think the cost of living is the major issue at the moment going into this election. The increased interest rates and um, rents are just getting really, really expensive and there's a housing shortage. Probably not as bad as here, but it's certainly a a new factor in Australia. The one is really concerning. Petrol prices are increasing everywhere. So I think that's one of the major issues. The second issue, which is my, the issue I'm most concerned about is the environment. And I know that's also a concern for about 29% of the voters. So, um, I mean, our global reputation is extremely poor in terms of trying to tackle climate change. So that's certainly an issue, but also um, particularly I think the floods at the moment in Queensland and um, the previous bushfires and the fact that Scott Morrison did not deal with those particularly well. Um, But we've also got mammal extinction going on in terms of our wildlife. It's just massive losses and nothing's really being done by that. And the coalition also um, decreased funding in that area. Brisbane-based surgeon Dr Liam Veerboom also felt that the blunders of the Morrison government had raised great concerns in the Australian psyche about corruption and honesty. I think it's been an interesting period for Australia in the last government because there have been a number of issues that are probably notable for the government's failings. Um, And it's the memory of those uh, that are probably most important, particularly being mismanagement of COVID-19 and mismanagement of um, the vaccination schedule. Um, that said, the, the current election campaign isn't really focusing at all on, uh, on the past. Both parties are fairly pragmatic in looking to, to future policies. Um, and uh, I think that the key issues, uh, one is integrity, um, so anti-corruption measures that were promised to be installed by Morrison in uh, this most recent uh, parliament, uh, but were shelved. Um, and the opposition, uh, the Labor Party, have pledged to bring in a genuine anti-corruption commission. Uh, so I think that's a key issue. It's an issue to at least, if you look at the um, what's being reported in the news, three quarters of Australians consider that significant. The key, the key thing for me is, uh, is government integrity. I think that there has been a significant erosion of trust in politicians, um, which unfortunately has been aided significantly by uh, biased reporting um, in our media. Uh, or not, if, if not by not directly biased, um, just very unbalanced or sensationalised approach. Um, I think that it's really important that politicians are trusted to spend money in a meritorious fashion, not in a way that is designed to um, return them to power. And I think that's for me the number one. Both Veerboom and Spencer mentioned that both sides of the political aisle in Australia were proposing policy to tackle so-called constant issues. I think that, other than that, uh, generally the cost of living is a significant issue and one that's tackled in different ways by each of the major parties. And then there are a number of what are not being pushed by the major parties but are constant issues, and that is um, action for climate change. Um, and a tension between collective rights and individual rights 
that really came to the fore during um, the COVID-19 issues. Labor has just come out to say that they would accept the minimum wage going up 5.1%, which is just just broken today, I think, and that's causing significant debate at the moment because of the concern about what that would do to actually inflation. So I personally, um, I don't think that it's being particularly tackled, but a lot of these issues are the result of international factors like the petrol prices that you can't really do a great deal about. Labor does have a policy to start um, reintroducing government-funded housing, um, partly funded, so that's actually um, a significant change because we've just seen since the 80s really decreased funding in, in state housing. So, that, so that's actually an innovative policy. The Liberals just want to re- people to rely on themselves as per usual. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that the Liberal Party is doing tackling this issue a great, a great deal. But also, as I said, a lot of it's out of their hands so they can come up with some policies that might look good but don't necessarily achieve what they want. For University of Otago student Hayden Rees, medicine and healthcare were an issue close to home, a sentiment that Via Berman Spencer shared. When I was talking to my parents about this, when I brought this up um, about surrounding, this is my first election, surrounding the um, topical issues, uh, the first thing they brought up was um, the payments for ambulance particularly comparing it to New Zealand life. Um, over here, I believe you guys have to, if you call for it, it's much cheaper as it is over in Australia. One thing towards both the Coalition and the Labor Party is the pharmaceutical benefits sa- scheme safety net. They're both trying to decrease the um, waiting period um, where you can get where you can apply for a discount in your prescription fees, which is will both benefit um, not only all Australians, but... Um, uh, lots of my family members as well, which would be good. I I think that both parties are trying to demonstrate uh, some kind of uh, willingness to address um, uh, healthcare costs for the general public. Um, the Labor Party is generally, as the party that introduced Medicare in Australia, they also have, along with uh, ad- addressing the pharmaceutical benefits, they wish to push more of the public healthcare model rather than a private healthcare model. And the cynic in me suggests that um, the Morrison government wants to be able to match uh, the Labor Party in terms of uh, a pharmaceutical benefit, but they don't want to do so. They don't want to um, uh, upset the balance of private healthcare models who would be their uh, usual election base. Another one I would say would be aged care, which is a growing concern with the ageing population in Australia, but really came to the forefront because of COVID and how obvious it is that it's underfunded and that people uh, really don't have proper wages and so they're working across a number of different aged cares um, facilities. And that's also a general issue, the fact that people don't have permanent full-time work. While a hot-button issue for the Liberals, China does not appear to be a primary concern of many Australians, despite the recent announcement regarding a defence pact between China and the Solomon Islands. It's an interesting question because I think that a number of people are growingly concerned about the influence of China, and I'm not sure if the everyday Australian, if it, if it factors into the way that the everyday Australian, um, you know, considers their managing their household work and budget and general day-to-day issues. But it's it's true that Australia is caught between a significant tension of uh, selling or trading with China substantially, uh, but also wanting to limit um, their political power uh, or overreach into Australian territory. So I, I think the average Australian would want to see... Um, Australia being tough to China in terms of um, political interference, but they wouldn't want to see a change in uh, our our economy substantially, and that's uh, that's a definite tension.
I think it's might be a small issue in terms of what's happened with the Solomon Islands. Um, so that's in people's consciousness, but I don't think it's the general major concern for most people living day to day. It, you know, it is for policymakers, it is for academics, but I don't think it's the general concern of most people. As a first-time voter, Hayden expressed considerable trepidation about the prospects of voting in a heavily politicised country. Yes, uh, I absolutely. Particularly growing up in the school, that's actually something I can tell you. Like growing up in school, everyone would talk about it, and if you'd say something about like, oh, say you, say you didn't know much about a certain party, like Labour or Liberals or the Greens, then um, you would be ridiculed. You'd be um, if you knew too much about them, or if you like. Uh, we were trying to justify their moral grounds behind why they're going to uh, run for it, uh, then, yeah, you'd just be put to the ground by the other side, the opposition and everything like that. The latest Roy Morgan poll shows the ALP leading the coalition by nine points. This is the R1 News here on Radio 191 FM. It is three minutes to 12, which brings us to the end of our show. Core Eileen Aho. Core Scott Aho. Today we spoke to Sonia Tiernan uh, from the Otago Centre for Scottish and Irish Studies about Sinn Féin's recent win in Northern Ireland. And then we spoke to Lisa Ellis uh, from the PPE programme here at Otago also um, about the upcoming budget next week and what it means for the climate. And just before... You heard uh, a, a multitude of Australians um, speaking on the the issues and concerns they have going into next week's general election. If you missed anything on today's show or want to listen again, you can check out our Spotify, uh, R1 News. You can follow us on Instagram, R1 News NZ, or you can see the news tab on the R1 website, r1.co.nz. For now, we will leave you with the dulcet tones of Salmonella Dub, Monday Roller, featuring Firimako Black.
That was a Radio 1 91FM podcast. But find more at r1.co.nz.